All right. I am, as Gabe said, I'm really excited to, to teach this. I've been really excited to teach all of them because every single time that I go into one of the, one of the stations and start studying really what I want to talk about, I start praying to the Lord and he starts showing me things. And a lot of it is stuff that I've never really seen before. I've read the scripture, but it's never really jumped out to me. And I think tonight is another one of those. I think the Lord's got something specific that he wants to share through, through the word here. So I'm going to jump right in. Hey, we're, it's five weeks until Easter, for those of you who are doing a countdown. Five weeks until Easter. We are on um, number four, Station of the Cross. And so we are in the middle of, of not necessarily a series, but I guess you'd call it a series where we are going through each individual station. Each week, we pick a Station of the Cross. Now, what is Station of the Cross? Some of you might not even be familiar with what that is, and that's totally understandable. Many, many people aren't even familiar. And if you've been going to Jubilee for a long time or now Discover, it's never been something that was really talked about. Okay, but it's more of a denominational thing, right? If you grew up with a Catholic background, you probably know about it. There's a lot of other denominations that talk about it, and maybe we've seen it just on Easter. We kind of associate that with an Easter thing. But there's so much more to that. There's so much more to what they call the passion of Christ, which is that final walk down the Via Dolorosa, which is an actual place in the city of Jerusalem that Jesus walked from his judgment to his crucifixion. And what we're talking about on the stations is along the way, at a dozen or eight, depending on which, which ones you count, which ones you use, um, there are significant things that happened along the way. And at each one of those places, there is a marker, actual marker in the town of Jerusalem, that shows this is the place where this significant event happened. And so um, that's what we're talking about when we talk about stations of the cross, and um, it's a tradition. Traditions are a good thing. You know, if you're sitting here and you say, well, you know, that's a, that's a Catholic thing or that's a Lutheran thing or that's a whatever kind of thing, it's a tradition that brings us together as, I think, as a family of believers in Jesus Christ. See, back in the early church, when it first started, there weren't denominations and there weren't different things like that. There were simply followers of Jesus Christ, and they called them the way. And they just followed Jesus with all their heart. And the church grew and grew and grew. And then personalities got involved and splits started to happen and things like that. But I think it's important to go back every now and then and look at some of their traditions, especially when they're meaningful, when they have a deep meaning. And so that's why we're working our way through the... Through the uh, could you bring me down sound-wise a little bit? I'm getting a lot of... There we go. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Talking about traditions, one of the traditions, and I told you a while back that I was going to kind of, as we near some of these traditions that we don't really talk about, especially in regards to like Jewish uh, holidays and stuff that, that don't get uh, a whole lot of airtime in churches now, I'm going to bring those up. And we have one that's actually coming up this Wednesday. Anybody know what this Wednesday is? Yeah, Purim. Purim or Purim or however you want to pronounce it. But yeah, it's Purim. And, and what that is, for those of you who don't know, it's a, it's a Jewish holiday. And if you've never read the book of Esther, okay, it's, it's a fairly short read. And it is a, it's an interesting read. Let me just put it that way. It's none of the flat like, uh, you know, hey, this is boring. You won't fall asleep in it, especially those of you who like the uh, 
TV shows of, of like, you know, reality shows and all the intrigue and stuff that goes on there, you will love the book of Esther. So you read the book of Esther. What Purim is, is essentially um, Haman, who's the, the villain in that book, okay, he hatches this plot to basically exterminate the entire Jewish race, okay, and Esther and Mordecai actually foil his plans, Long story short, they foil his plans, and then Mordecai becomes the one who's in charge rather than Haman, who used to be in charge, and he decides what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that day that, that Haman had set aside for the countdown to zero day when the Jews get exterminated, and I'm going to turn that into a holiday. I'm going to turn that into a celebration. And so that's what Purim is. It is a celebration of the fact that the Jewish people were not exterminated in that plot by Haman. That's what it is. It's celebrated by feasting, uh, by partying. Here's one thing that I want to point out to you. It's just funny. If anybody knows what the Talmud is, the Talmud is basically a collection of books that is Jewish, Jewish law, essentially. Jewish law and how to administer Jewish law. So it tells you when you're, when you're celebrating a certain holiday or you're doing a certain ritual, here's how you observe it. And just an interesting thing from the Talmud, for those of you who think that it's like dry and, and you know, like the, like the Jewish people and Jewish law is no fun at all, okay, and depending on your level of what fun is, according to the Talmud, a person is required to drink wine until he cannot tell the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. The Talmud says... You have to drink until you can no longer tell the difference between those two phrases. So, that's, I'm not recommending that. Okay, let's get that clear. That's the Jewish tradition. So, when you see on Wednesday it comes up and, and, you, and you hear Purim, that, you'll know what it is. Okay, and enough on that. I just kind of want to keep you up. And as we hit these holidays, just kind of tell you what it's about so that, you can, so that you can be informed. So, anyway, let's get right into the message. Um, why the Stations of the Cross, okay? The Stations of the Cross, as I said before, are Jesus' path through Jerusalem on his way to be crucified. And again, there are many, many things that happened along the way. And depending on the tradition that you ascribe to, there's anywhere from eight of them to 14 of them, depending, okay? And again, this is tradition. We're focusing on the eight that are explicitly listed in the Bible, okay? So to give you a quick recap of what we've talked about the last few weeks, Station number one, is out of Mark 15, 15, says, Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Okay, Jesus being judged, handed over to be crucified. The second station, John 19, 17, is they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of a skull, which is called Golgotha. Okay, that's where they give Jesus his cross. He accepts it, and then he begins Walking. Station three last week is Mark 15 21, where they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country named Simon of Cyrene. It's where Jesus collapses, okay, under the weight of the cross, under the blood loss, under not having water or food, all these things, this weakness, and he collapses and then he requires help. So today, where we are this weekend, we're at station number four. Okay, station number four, I'll show you what it looks like. Now, you can see the, if you weren't here, I'll explain it to you really quick. Those little round discs that are on the walls are actually, that one on the left is Roman numeral three, on the right is Roman numeral four, and, the, and sorry for the picture being a little bit dark, but this is an actual place 
in the town of Jerusalem. So that is Jerusalem right there. And it's showing you that this is the spot, okay, historically or approximately where this thing happened to Jesus, where this significant moment along the way happened. And what I want to point out to you is the context of this. If you look on the left, if you were here last week, this is the, the one on the left is where Jesus collapses and Simon is pulled out of the crowd to actually help him bear his cross, okay? Ten feet away is station number four, which is where we are now. And I want you to keep that in mind. Jesus had just collapsed under the weight of the cross and blood loss and weakness and needed help to carry the cross. Moments later, this takes place, okay? Station number four. So, so Simon had just helped Jesus pick up the cross. Jesus, throat dry, he hadn't anything, had anything to eat or drink in a while because he had been prisoner. And he decided at this moment, at this place in time, to preach his last sermon, Okay, now, if you, know, if you know the Bible, you'll know that while he's on the cross, he says some things. He, he, he speaks. He talks to Father God. He talks to the other criminal that's being crucified along with him. So he speaks, but that's to an individual. This is the last time where he addresses a sermon, if you will, to a crowd in general. And you might ask, why? Why now? Why at this time and place when he has just collapsed Okay, and just immediately later, he decides, hey, I'm going I'm to preach one more message because this is important. It must be something important, right? So this is the final teaching, the final corporate teaching of Jesus before he's crucified. That's the significance of this moment. And if you ask why, why here, why now, and not somewhere else along the way, it's interesting to note this. If he would have preached when he was in being judged, if he would have said these things, okay, the Sanhedrin, the Romans, probably would have just squashed it and nobody would have heard about it. You wouldn't have heard the words that he said. If he had done it in just about any other context, it probably would have been squashed and nobody would have heard it. This was a chance when there were all kinds of people gathered around. Okay, so there were Roman soldiers, there were the random Jewish people that were walking around, there were, there were crowds that were in town for Passover, um, there were mourners. There were all kinds of people who were around from all different sorts of backgrounds. And he has the opportunity here to actually preach to them in a way that can't be filtered. Okay, now we would say, you know, the news media is going to filter what you say. This was unvarnished. He was able to preach directly to them and in the moment. The other thing that's important to note is that his actions... His actions in this moment were not what anybody expected. Because if you were being crucified and you were having to carry your cross and you had just collapsed, chances are you would be either lashing out at the Roman guards or you would be refusing to carry the cross or you would in some way be a little bit rebellious in that process. Very few people would just willingly go. But Jesus, by his actions, not only was he going willingly and not resisting them, but he takes a moment in the middle of all this to preach to the crowd surrounding him. Now, if you're a witness to that, can you imagine going back to your home, going back to your friends and saying, you'll never believe what I saw. This man being crucified, this Christ being crucified and taken to the cross, he stopped and he taught much more impactful than any other way that he could have done it. 
Now, here's our scripture for this station. Uh, actually, go, I'm sorry, go to that second picture right there. I couldn't find a very good one, but this picture, this painting right here kind of relays some of the chaos that was going on at that moment. Okay, you can see Jesus is collapsed on the cross. Simon is in the back there kind of helping him sort of lift it up. And then you've got these women who are off to the side and they're crying and they're wailing. And then you've got the crowds in the back. You've got Roman guards who are trying to whip him to get him to get up. It's just, it's a chaotic scene. And it's in this chaotic scene that Jesus looks over and he sees these women who are weeping and wailing for him. And then that's when we lead to our scripture, if you pull that up. This is Luke 23, verses 27 to 31. It's a little bit long, but we'll break it down. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree, when the tree is, that should say green, what will happen when, it was dry, when it's dry? Okay. So let's break this down and go verse by verse. Because there's so much. That's kind of a long, long section of scripture there. But a couple things I want you to know. First of all, Luke is the only gospel to record this part, okay? All four gospels talk about this walk down the Via Dolorosa, and they, they more or less mirror the, the different stations and the things that happen. Luke is the only one that pulls this out and actually talks about Jesus speaking to these ladies. And it's interesting just to note that because each gospel that you look at, the author has their own personality, and they have their own things. They're reporting the facts as they see them, but they have their own personality. So some want to talk a little bit more about the relational aspect. Some want to talk a little bit more about the lordship aspect of, of Jesus. Luke is a doctor. So Luke is very much like, I'm going to document what's happening here. And so he captures some details that not a lot of them capture. So it's interesting. Uh, just to note, you'll only find this little section in Luke. So when we break it down, Okay, so Luke 23, 27, break this down. Following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. Okay, so there were disciples, there were members of the Sanhedrin, there were Romans, there were curious Jews, there was a group of, of ladies called the Daughters of Galilee who were just known essentially as they were um, kind of the Salvation Army of their day. They would travel around Jerusalem and they would, they would help and they would, they would render assistance, sometimes money, sometimes food, to traveling prophets and ministers kind of like Jesus. So they would assist them. So they were very good at that. Um, if, you're, if you have a Catholic background, you might be saying, this station right here, isn't this the one where Jesus meets his mother? Okay, a lot of people, a lot of people know that. And in fact, um, we don't have to go back to it, but in that picture... There was, there was a, a picture, and there was a woman off to the side, and that's the Catholic tradition has that that's Jesus' mother. But, again, I say tradition because Jesus' mother is only mentioned in the Gospel of John. She's not mentioned at this point, only in the Gospel of John. And at that point, 
Jesus is actually on the cross at that point, and his mother's there. So there's nothing biblical that says that his mother was right there. And in fact, if his mother was there, it kind of changes the meaning of what we're going to dig into right here. So just kind of keep that in mind. So there are all these people sitting around, and, and Jesus decides that he's going to preach to them. So let's go on to the next one, verse 28. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Okay. So that, that phrase, yourself, for yourselves and for your children, that's, that's a phrase, a Jewish phrase that goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. It was a very common phrase, meaning generational. Weep for your generation. Weep for your people. It's for, your, for yourselves and for your children. It was a very common thing. But now the thing to know about this, the daughters of Jerusalem, daughters of Jerusalem, what they were is professional mourners. Okay, He's not speaking to just generally saying, hey, daughters of Christ, like you all are, right? He's saying, daughters of Jerusalem, he specifically says that. Daughters of Jerusalem was a group of ladies who were professional mourners. They actually got paid to attend funerals and to wail and mourn and show the proper amount of grief and, and angst during these types of events. So when something like this started to happen, they would hear and they would go spread the word to all the other daughters of Jerusalem. Hey, we're having a we're having a funeral. Come on, grab your best wailing outfit, and let's come and let's do this. So they were professionals. Now, it was their responsibility in Jewish tradition to actually go and lament. Now, they, they didn't know, in a lot of cases, they didn't even know the person that they were mourning. But their effectiveness was measured by how loud and how crazy they got when they were wailing and mourning. Okay, and in fact, tradition said even if you were poor and you didn't have any money, you had to have at least two mourners. You had one that, had, that played the flute, typically, traditionally, and then another one to just wail as loudly as possible. So these ladies that you see off to the side, the daughters of Jerusalem that he's addressing, are actually professionals. They are putting on a show of mourning. They're putting on a really good show of mourning this, this person. Now, some of them may have heard of this prophet Jesus, but chances are they didn't. They were just there putting on a show of grief and mourning. They weren't sincere. They looked the part. They acted the part. But there was nothing in their heart. It's just what they did because that's what their job was. So let's go to the next one, Luke 23, 29. 23, 29, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Jesus is warning them. He's warning them and saying, hey, don't, don't weep for me because the time is coming where you're going to be weeping for yourselves and it's going to be better that you never had children in this fallen world. That's what he's saying because he knows that without him, they're, 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 what am I going to say? They're slave to their own ways and to their own traditions, including even things like this where the professional mourners are there. And he's calling out the hypocrisy of what they're doing. They're mourning and wailing away for this person that they don't even know when knowing him would actually be the one thing that would save him, save them. So on down, uh, next verse, verse 30. I know we're moving through these kind of quickly. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, 
cover us. Now, if you see the, where the words there, to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us, that's capitalized. And what that indicates is that's actually found in other scripture. In this case, it's actually found in the book of Hosea, Old Testament scripture. So Jesus is quoting Old Testament scripture to them that those with ears to hear would have recognized. And what Hosea is saying, this is actually in Hosea 10, uh, 10 8. And he's saying to them, woe be to you, Israel, because the time is coming where you're, you would rather that the mountains fell on you and buried you and killed you than you had to live through the times that you're creating. So that's what Hosea is, is warning about. This is 700 years earlier, by the way. He's warning them about that. And Jesus right here is saying to those who have ears to hear, he's saying, you, Jerusalem, are becoming the very thing that Hosea warned you about 700 years ago. And he's quoting that scripture. And they would have recognized that. Many of them would have recognized that. Again, he's saying, it's going to be so bad that you'll pray for death. You'll pray that the mountains will fall on you and crush you because it would be far better. Then in verse 31, next one. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Now that's a common Jewish proverb. Okay, so they, anybody that's Jewish in the crowd would have known kind of that proverb. And what it means is if they'll do this to Jesus, Jesus is saying, if they'll do this to me, what will become of you when I'm gone? If you don't come to me now, what's going to happen when the one that gives life, the only one without sin, when he's gone, what will become of you? He's basically given them one more chance for the light bulb to go off and say, we need to follow this guy because he is the life. But he knows that's not going to happen in this instance. And what they're saying, if they do these things to me, they're talking, he's talking about the Romans. Okay? So without him there, then the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership is just going to do what the Romans tell them to do. And that's not going to bring life, and they'll certainly never find Jesus at that point. Jesus is the one that brings life, and he's warning them that when I'm gone, it's not going to be good for you. So again, so that's it for the scripture. But I want you to think again, why in this moment, in this place, and in this time did Jesus decide, I want to preach one more time? Certainly he would have been forgiven to say, you know what, I'm busy. I'm just going to, I'm going to help bear this cross and I'm going to make it up and, and fulfill my destiny, fulfill what the Father has laid out for me. Because he knew what was going to happen to him and he willingly accepted it and he was walking into that. But he took time right here to preach again. And why do you think? It's the message of insincerity that Jesus constantly railed against. The message of doing things for show. The message of doing things because this is just what we do. See, Jesus was never okay with that. He was never okay with just doing things because that's what the law said you were supposed to do. Doing things because that's what religion said to do. See, church, I don't like religion. To me, the word religion defines this is, this is how we do things. It's a set of rules and structure that we put on a relationship with the Lord. 
Now, don't get me wrong, there has to be some sort of structure at least when we do communion and things like this, but I never want things to become rote for us. I never want to be wailing and lamenting what Jesus went through without a heart understanding of what he went through. Doing that just because this is what we do and now is the time when we do it. See, that's religion and that's what Jesus is teaching against right here. He is always calling out the hypocrites. Constantly doing that because it's what's in your heart that's important to him. He asks for our sincerity. And in fact, there are times when he says, I would rather have your sincere disagreement than just be lukewarm. That's a scripture that you might know, Revelations 3.15. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, Jesus isn't saying, I, I wish that you had a cold heart. I want you to have a cold heart. In this instance, he's saying, I want a heart that has never warmed to me a heart that has never been warm to begin with because that I can do something with. But it's those people who are lukewarm, those people who know of him and just say, I'll just do the bare minimum. I'll put on a show of doing the right thing. See, he doesn't, he doesn't want your show. He doesn't want your, your righteous appearance. He wants your heart. That's what he's after. So these mourners, that's who he was addressing in this case. These mourners were not sincere. It wasn't in their heart, but they were putting on a show. And that's not what he wants. So worship team can go ahead and and start coming up. Here's what I want you to know, church. Our Father is so much more concerned with your heart than your outward appearance. He wants your heart, and he wants every bit of your heart, and he could care less what your outward appearance is. We don't have to look religious, and we don't have to look holy, and we don't have to carry the biggest Bible around, and we don't have to make a show of what we do. What we have to do is love him with our heart. That's what he wants. He wants our heart, not our action. He's more concerned with the passion in your heart than your outward zeal. And where Jesus preaches against the zealots, and the zealots are a bunch of people that just went around just making a huge show of everything that they did. But he doesn't want that. He wants your heart's passion to be to him. And that's what he calls us for. Don't do anything for show, but do it out of a passionate thankfulness for what Jesus did for us. And then an acceptance of who he is and what he accomplished for us on the cross. See, I know this can be the kind of a message, even now I'm, I'm feeling like there are people who are feeling like this is kind of a condemning message. And I don't mean it to be, and Jesus didn't mean it to be. He's saying, set aside those things that you do for show and come to me. Don't worry about looking the part Worry about what's in your heart. That's why he takes this time in the middle of pain and in the middle of torture to teach one last message. He wants your heart.
And so I think one way that we can celebrate and we can show a thankful heart for what Jesus did is that we can take communion. Now again, I don't want this to be a religion thing. So if you're sitting there going, I'm just not feeling it, you don't need to take communion. But if you do, I want to serve you. My wife and I will be up front here. We've got wine and bread. We'll serve you up here. And at the crosses, we have juice. If you'd rather serve yourself there, you can do that. But let's do it with true thankfulness of who Jesus is and what he accomplished and everything that he gave for us and everything that he went through for us in order to give us life. Knowing full well that a lot of people would completely reject his offer. Knowing full well that they would be people who would accept his offer and put it on a shelf and not live the life. He doesn't want our actions, he wants our heart and out of that overflow of the heart will come the actions that glorify him. So I just want you to ask yourself as you're taking communion, Am I glorifying the Lord in in who I am and what I do? And am I doing any of this just for show? Because that's not what he wants. He wants your heart. So the worship team is going to play on. And as usual, I would like you to sit in your seats for just a few moments and just prayerfully ask the Lord, is there anything that I'm doing that's not what what you want of me? Is there anything that's holding me back from giving my heart to you completely? Because through all of this, that's all he wants. He just wants your heart. We have the prayer team in back. Maybe you're having a hard time even even knowing what those things might be or even knowing how to pray a prayer like that. They would love to help you through that. But let's start now moving around. When you are ready, you can start moving around. Again, you can serve yourselves or we'll serve you. Let's do it in thankfulness, a true heartfelt overflow of thankfulness for what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. Amen. Searching for answers 
connect with one another and uh, reach out. Let's bear one another burdens like we learned about last week. Let's encourage one another. Bless you.
subscribe unto the Lord. Be glory to His name. Subscribe unto the Lord. The honor and the praise for He is holy.
I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. Take it, Richard. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart see? Will I stand for you, Jesus? My still. Will I stand in your presence? To my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak it all? I can only imagine 